It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Uh, today, I've got two subjects and two different ones. We'll see how far we get on them. Um, one of them, is, I got the idea from the headline of the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline by the new President Biden. And so I thought I'd talk a little bit about that and broaden the discussion to various Canadian-American trade uh, disputes. So that, that's topic number one, and then we'll see where we go with that one. So just to give you an idea what the Keystone Pipeline is, um, let's see, I've got this little map over here. Uh, okay, so you, you could see a kind of a, a, a triangular shape and the line over here is the Canadian-US border, right there, along there. This point where I'm pointing my finger to, this is the beginning of the pipeline in Alberta. So the, um, the, uh, everyone seems to know that the uh, oil produced in Alberta is, comes from the oil sands, which are in the northern part of Alberta. But these oil sands are piped uh, all the way down south to south um, uh, eastern Alberta, where the beginning of the Keystone Pipeline is. So this isn't where the oil is produced. This is where the oil gets shipped to as a start of its long distance shipment uh, to market. Now, up until now, this oil has been shipped in a, in a pipeline in Canada called the Trans-Canada Pipeline. And it goes all the way to the east through Saskatchewan and into Manitoba. And from Manitoba, it takes a straight road all the way down, you see here, to this point over here in Nebraska, which is a major shipping point for, um, for oil. Because remember, North Dakota has its own huge oil fields uh, from fracking, um, uh, a major producer of oil right there. So this oil gets joined up. It gets shipped down to here in Nebraska. And from here, the uh, Trans-Canada Pipeline, the Keystone Pipeline, runs all the way down to the Texas coast, all the way down at the bottom, right near Houston, where there is a huge oil refinery, which specializes in refining heavy oil. And from there, uh, the oil is actually shipped abroad um, by, uh, by uh, tanker to whatever market there exists. That's kind of how it's supposed to work. The Keystone Pipeline, the idea was to, instead of going this way and this way, was to make a shortcut, a kind of a hypotenuse, uh, and take the direct route from Alberta all the way this way, straight to Nebraska, the collection point. And from there, of course, continuing on south, um, all the way down. There's a branch line that goes from here uh, into uh, Illinois, this way, to a different refinery but the main route is going down this way. Uh, there's another collection point in Oklahoma called Cushing, which is the uh, headquarters of all the pricing for oil shipped by pipeline. So if you wanna know what, a, uh, what a, a barrel of oil costs, it's usually priced out of Cushing, Oklahoma, right in there somewhere. So this is the, this is the plan over here. Now, obviously, it takes a long time and a lot of planning to build a pipeline. You have to have 
get the rights to uh, write a passage through all the different lands is because it goes across the border. You have to get the agreement of um, the United States. And um, when this pipeline was proposed, it was proposed, believe it or not, way back in 1985. Um, at that time, there was big demand in the US for Canadian oil. Uh, the United States at the time was a big oil importer, uh, the biggest oil importer in the world. Um, remember that in the 70s, there was the oil crisis, a huge shortage of oil. So by the 80s, when this um, pipeline got started, uh, there was all kinds of backing for the pipeline. And it was felt by the U.S. that this would help uh, uh, give to the United States um, energy security. That up until then, and even up until today, the United States is still importing oil from even from the uh, Middle East, even from Saudi Arabia, even from um, Kuwait, and uh, from places closer to the US, namely Mexico and Colombia, but also from Venezuela uh, before, the, um, before the embargo. So these countries were shipping oil into the Gulf of Mexico, into Texas, and it was thought, you know, rather than rely on foreign suppliers, if the U.S. had Canada as a supplier, it would be much more safe and much more secure. And so the approval was given to build this pipeline. Um, and uh, it was uh, certainly approved by the Canadian government. Um, but, you know, things take time. Financing takes time to uh, get together. And um, uh, it takes time to negotiate all of the rights of way and everything else. This is thousands of miles of pipeline. Um, and um, by the time uh, it got to President Obama, the pipeline had already been started in, uh, in Alberta uh, to be built. Uh, President Obama um, uh, rejected the pipeline. He canceled the permit. And the reason is because by the time President Obama uh, took office, you know, we're talking now uh, 12 years ago and eight years ago, the situation had changed quite a lot. Uh, the United States developed its own oil resources from fracking, which did not exist before. Uh, the demand for heavy oil in any case was going down. The cost of refining it was going up. And most importantly, uh, oil and heavy oil especially was seen as being environmentally unfriendly. And so uh, when President Obama started speaking about uh, the Paris Accord and minimizing CO2 output, uh, the environment said what, a, what a, an easy way to do it is to cancel the Keystone Pipeline because the amount of energy used just to produce this oil is huge. Um, and it would be a good idea to cancel the pipeline. In addition, there were some other lobbyists besides um, environmentalists. There were also Native, um, Native Americans and Native Canadians who were against the pipeline because they felt it would um, potentially ruin their, um, their uh, properties, uh, that leaks were possible, and... Um, in any case, uh, they just didn't like the idea of an oil pipeline sort of disturbing the, uh, the environment uh, of their lands. And so he canceled the pipeline. Uh, 
Trump gets elected, day one, his first act was to reauthorize the pipeline. I remember watching him on TV, signing it, and he said, nah, we're going to have the pipeline, uh, you know, because this will create jobs. It certainly would create thousands of jobs in the construction of the pipeline. And as you know, Trump couldn't care less about the environment. Uh, he loves coal and oil. And he said, this is an easy kind of low-hanging fruit. And I'm approving the pipeline in my first week of office. But of course, as you can figure out, approving a pipeline and getting it built are two entirely different things. And uh, so Keystone started again to get reauthorization to uh, plan the pipeline. Uh, you know, they ordered pipe, they ordered, uh, you have to order, you know, excavators and surveyors and uh, land management people. There has to be consultation with all the landowners and also consultation with the native tribes through which this oil would pass. Um, and of course, this met with tremendous resistance because um, compared to the, say, we'll call it the 80s and 90s and 2000s, we now are even sort of deeper into a climate crisis. And the environmentalists put up every single legal roadblock they could to um, block the pipeline. Lawsuits, uh, challenges, appeals, all these legal uh, things were done. In addition, the state of Nebraska, which is an extremely conservative state um, politically, uh, and certainly a state which has no, no kind of um, uh, negative feeling towards oil, what they, what they realize is, is that the, the pipeline would pass through two very sensitive areas in the state. One area is called the grasslands, which are a kind of a last remaining um, corner of the native prairie of the United States where uh, it hadn't been plowed over. So this is an environmentally uh, sensitive area. But even more important was the Ogallala Aquifer, which is a huge, huge aquifer, meaning an underground water storage area, uh, which uh, supplies water to 30 million people and is the, um, is the uh, largest uh, used underground aquifer in North America. And the fear, of course, was is that if the oil leaked, this aquifer would be damaged. It's important to understand that uh, oil from the oil sands is not the same as oil from uh, a regular uh, oil production facility. It's much more acidic. That means that it could eat the inside of pipes and leak. And we know that it leaks three times more often than regular oil uh, from regular oil pipelines. There have been already, TransCanada has had several huge leaks, one in Michigan that was like a fountain of oil spurting up in the air like you see in pictures. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's also much harder to clean up because it's very heavy and oily. Uh, it doesn't float on water like regular oil does. It sinks to the bottom. And therefore, if it gets into a water source or water supply or lake or river or pond, uh, it's practically impossible to clean it up without emptying all the water out of that whole lake and then, you know, scraping the bottom. So um, it, it's very, very uh, dangerous for the environment should there be a leak. 
So in the United States, then the environmentalists complained, the state of Nebraska complained, and also the Native, in, uh, Native uh, Americans complained because um, there's one key sort of uh, crossing, river crossing, which they said held, uh, you know, sacred ground, and they refused to allow any passage of that um, pipeline through there. Now, the decision that uh, Keystone made, which could be maybe in hindsight uh, a mistake, was to try to fight these things in court, uh, rather than to say, okay, I see what your objections are, forget about this route, let's take a, a less direct route and just go there. But, you know, they said, no, uh, we're going to fight our way in court and Trump is going to support us. But, you know, courts being courts, things get delayed, 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 and delayed. And the whole idea that the opponents had was to delay, to delay the pipeline as much as they could. And, and they succeeded because eventually Trump was defeated and uh, Biden was elected. And he went to Obama's program and canceled the Keystone Pipeline altogether. Um, um, the Canadian uh, natives also oppose this pipeline because they don't want more production to come out of the Alberta oil sands. Uh, you have to understand how the oil actually comes out of the ground. It is a kind of a tarry substance, and that's why they originally called it the tar sands. Uh, you might remember the Alberta tar sands, the Athabasca tar sands. Well, the oil industry figured out that the word tar sounds terrible, so they renamed it the oil sands instead of the tar sands. You know, you think of tar from roads, you think of tar from tobacco, and the word tar has such a negative connotation that they just kind of magically renamed it the oil sands. But to, to make that oil into a shippable, usable product, it has to be very heated to a very high temperature uh, and diluted, so diluted uh, by using hot water, uh, and then and only then um, uh, can it be sh uh, shipped in a pipeline. Otherwise, it's almost so solid, like a like a kind of a you know what I mean. If you think of a tar in a tar barrel that's heated up. You know, it moves very slowly. So this this stuff has to be diluted, and it's diluted not with water. I, I mentioned water, but the water is used to heat the substance, and then it, it's mixed with uh, benzene and ethylene and other lighter petroleum products to thin it out enough so that it could then be shipped. So it's it's a the most expensive um, oil to produce, and it's amazing, you know, that with the regular with the low price of oil these days, it's gone up a bit now, over fifty dollars a barrel, but that it's still economical to produce it. But it's not that economical. Uh, many people feel that oil from the oil sands is a losing proposition, and all the big majors like Shell and Exxon and Total have sold off their properties. Uh, Tech Resources in Canada canceled this multi-billion dollar project to start. Uh, because um, right now in the world, there's a surplus of oil. And, uh, you know, to get oil from the oil sands is the most expensive oil you can get. Uh, they're still able to produce oil in, 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 the, in the Persian Gulf for, uh, you know, close to $10 a barrel, total all-in costs. You know, I've even seen figures at $3 a barrel. 
So uh, to produce oil from the oil sands, they say costs $70 a barrel. So it's not uh, exactly a well-paying proposition. Um, and the, so the what I was going to say is that the Canadian natives in Athabasca feel that the Athabasca River, the water from that river is being taken out of the river to, um, to uh, heat up, to, to dilute the oil sands. And then it's poured back into the Athabasca River, polluting the river. And of course, the natives are against this because that's one of their, um, you know, heritage sites and sources of income. And so they're against the whole oil sand project altogether. Um, it's, uh, I was reading some statistics here that the pipeline, if they got it approved, would lead to more production. And uh, the oil production, um, the uh, annual uh, uh, environmental cost or CO2 cost uh, of producing this oil, carbon dioxide, is equal to 46 coal plants or 38 and a half million cars. So um, in, in the day, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu and Jimmy Carter all opposed the Keystone Pipeline. Um, now, of course, uh, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. So uh, you may know, uh, we all do know, that a lot of oil in Canada is shipped by rail instead of by pipeline. So in other words, uh, it's not as if um, oil production would stop because the Keystone Pipeline is canceled. There still is a kind of a smaller diameter, long distance pipeline, number one. Number two, they can ship the oil in those rail cars. We all see them going through Montreal, those black um, kind of uh, circular um, round cars. And we all know about the horrible tragedy in Megantic uh, where, um, uh, you know, uh, there was a fire and the whole thing caught fire. Uh, environmentally, shipping oil by rail is a lot more dangerous than shipping oil by pipeline because the oil is above ground, it's exposed, these rail cars can leak, they can turn, you know, they don't have to blow up, but they fall off the tracks often enough when there's a landslide or there's a weakening in the rail bed and uh, these cars tip over and sometimes they leak and, you know, it's not pretty, let's put it like that. Um, the uh, amount of jobs that would be created from this pipeline once it's finished is very small because the oil just runs all by itself. Um, now, uh, as I said that uh, the, uh, the um, for many, many years, the, the United States had a law saying that it was forbidden to export oil because there was an oil shortage in the US and they didn't want oil, you know, from Texas to be um, exported while they're importing oil from somewhere else, landing in uh, the East Coast or landing on the West Coast. But now the United States is the actual biggest oil producer in the world. The United States produces more oil than anywhere else. And uh, the economics of it are that it pays to import oil in some places and export oil in other places. And that's what they're doing. So this oil that would have come from Canada is, and still it comes from Canada, uh, is destined for export. Um, um, uh, let's just see now. 
So, um, you know, the government of Alberta itself invested billions of dollars in the pipeline. And uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said he supports the pipeline. Um, you know, it's a major economic activity in uh, the West. Um, for many, many, many years, Alberta was the richest province in Canada, contributing the most money to the federal government. Um, uh, the greatest share, we'll say, of surplus money went to the federal government uh, because of the oil wealth and the taxes that the federal government charged on oil production and the sale of, sale of oil. Um, and uh, Alberta is rated as a have province, not a have not province. Uh, so under the equalization program, Alberta never took a dime of federal money. And now Alberta says, look, we need you, the federal government, to support us in this pipeline. And, um, you know, it's very hard for Trudeau to put on his environmental hat and say, no, 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 this is not good for the environment. So why don't you uh, learn to be, uh, you know, Uber drivers instead? Um, very hard to do that. So the uh, Canadian government supports the pipeline. Um, Mr. Trudeau had a discussion with Mr. Biden and kind of asked him if they, he could, you know, delay the uh, rejection or, you know, go around it somehow. But, um, you know, Mr. Biden has a lot more important backers than Mr. Trudeau uh, on his Democratic uh, Party, in, in the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, especially on the left wing of the Democratic Party. And uh, he decided to cancel the program right off the bat. Um, you know, you might, off, you might make the argument it's a backhanded support to American producers because, in a sense, if there's less oil on the market, then the price may go up. Uh, you know, uh, let's put it like this. Uh, the price of oil in the world is a world price. And uh, it's certainly not dependent on oil coming from the, uh, from the Alberta oil sands, uh, that's for sure. Um, <clears throat> on the same subject of oil pipelines, uh, the Canadian government got itself involved in a different pipeline. This one goes again from Alberta, but goes to the West Coast over the Rocky Mountains to um, Burnaby, British Columbia, suburb of Vancouver. Now, this pipeline was started by Kinder Morgan Company, an American company, which already built a pipeline. And they wanted to double the capacity of it by building a parallel pipeline to the one that's already there. And again, the natives uh, and environmentalists held it up in court to the point where uh, Kinder Morgan went to the Canadian government and said, look, this is your country. If you can't force this pipeline through, then um, we want you, we want to sell the pipeline and just get out of the whole business because, uh, you know, we, we, we can't do business in, these, in this atmosphere. And the Canadian government actually spent billions of dollars to buy the pipeline from Kinder Morgan and to finish the pipeline that will go to Vancouver. Now, because the Keystone is cancelled, it's all the more important for producers in Alberta to get the the, uh, the, the new um, uh, pipeline uh, finished, in, the new Kinder Morgan pipeline finished uh, going to Vancouver. Uh, Canada has spent uh, many, many hours negotiating and paying uh, native uh, bands to um, give the right of way for this pipeline, to create jobs for them uh, so that they will have a stake in this pipeline. 
And so far, it seems as if this is a going concern. It's going. Uh, there were many demonstrations in Burnaby uh, against the pipeline. The objections to the uh, Kinder Morgan pipeline are that the oil tankers will come in to load up the oil in a very environmentally uh, important place on the Pacific coast where whales are passing by all the time um, and where an oil spill would result in uh, uh, a tragic loss for Vancouver and for the, for the environment uh, all around the coastal BC. Remember, there was an Exxon spill in Alaska, which, uh, you know, took so many years to clean up and devastated the, um, devastated the shoreline of, of an area which is basically uninhabited. Imagine if, if oil were to spill on the coastline of uh, BC, right outside Vancouver Harbor, uh, you know, that would be certainly bad. But the Canadian government said, no, you know, we have all kinds of, uh, you know, safety measures, uh, etc. So it looks as if that pipeline will continue, but, it, but it's far from being finished. So, um, you know, that's the, um, that's the uh, story about the pipeline. Um, uh, the, of course, the American oil industry wants that pipeline to go through. Uh, the Texas refineries want that oil to be refined but they don't have as much say right now with the Biden government as, um, you know, as the environmentalists. So that's a bit of a background about the Keystone Pipeline. Now, there are two other, um, there are two other trade disputes that Canada has with the United States, which are significant and worthwhile to discuss. And so that's what I'll do now. The main one, the lo most long-lasting one, is the softwood lumber dispute. Um, what is softwood lumber? It's lumber that comes from trees that have needles on them. So that's the idea of softwood. Uh, it's not tr trees, it's not wood made to, use to, to make furniture out of. Uh, it's not wood uh, that's used to make, um, you know, guitars and stuff like that. Softwood is used for construction. Uh, plywood is made from softwood. Construction lumber is made from softwood. Um, uh, particle board is made from softwood. Uh, basically, softwood is used in, in most industrial uses of lumber. It comes from softwood. Now, uh, it's important to know that although wood grows everywhere in Canada, and wood is exported from pretty well every province in Canada, except uh, Prince Edward Island, maybe Newfoundland. Uh, no, Newfoundland has had a big mill. Yeah, it still has a big mill. Um, most of the wood that's produced in Canada for export comes from British Columbia. Uh, that's where the uh, old growth forests are. That's where the most productive trees are. Uh, and uh, that's where most of the lumber comes from. Now, the lumber um, could be exported raw, meaning in logs, which are milled someplace else. That's unfortunately what uh, BC is sending off to the Far East, to China, Japan, etc. Or it could be milled in BC at the different sawmills, made into different products, different size pieces of, of lumber and plywood, 
and then shipped to the United States uh, that way, or even shipped abroad that way. Um, but unfortunately for British Columbia, there is a big rival industry doing the same thing in Washington state and Oregon state. So they're using the same trees, the same environment, the same nice humid uh, conditions, uh, which make the trees go, grow quickly. Uh, the lack of uh, very, very hot weather, which would uh, dry out the trees. Um, the same environment that Pacific uh, rain, rain coast environment uh, that they have in BC, they also have in Washington, Oregon. And uh, they have a huge lumber industry there. You might have heard of Weyerhaeuser Lumber, one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, and so the American lumber producers are competing against the Canadian lumber producers. Now, uh, here's, the, here's the crux of the issue. Um, when a, an American uh, lumber company is producing lumber, they either have to buy the land itself on which the timber is cut, or they have to pay the landowner for the right to cut the lumber. Uh, needless to say, this payment or this ownership uh, is a considerable part of the cost, besides the, uh, you know, the cost of the uh, lumberjacks to cut it, the rail transport or the road transport to get it to a mill, the milling of the lumber, and you know, there you are, that's the end of the road. Um, in Canada, most of the lumber that's cut is cut on government-owned land, Government of Canada-owned land, in fact. Uh, so we all know how, you know, north of, uh, north of um, you know, the cities in, in British Columbia or even in Montreal, uh, there's vast territories of land which is empty and which is, in a sense, government-owned. Um, the Canadian government doesn't charge the lumber, Canadian lumber companies uh, to, to cut wood on the, these territories, or they charge them a very minimal amount. What they say is that we want the jobs created by the harvesting of the timber, number one. We want the roads that the timber company are, are building so that these roads will act as transportation uh, corridors for other people. Uh, and, um, you know, if nobody cut that lumber down, you know, eventually it would just die and, you know, there would be no economic gain out of it. So the American lumber producers are saying, look, we're playing with an unequal playing field here. The Canadian, uh, uh, the Canadian lumber industry is benefiting because the government, in a sense, is giving them a subsidy by not charging them enough for the right to cut the timber down. The Canadians say, listen, that's how our system works. We're not, we're, it's not, you know, this is just the way it is. Um, you know, you could do the same thing if you wanted. Uh, let the American government buy the property and give the right to uh, lumber companies to cut the, the, the timber. And so this disagreement has ended up in the World Trade Organization for years. They've been fighting this out. The Americans have put tariffs on Canadian shipments of Canadian lumber. What's interesting is that these tariffs are not equal. It's not on all Canadian timber. 
where Canadian timber is cut on private land or where the Canadian uh, lumber companies are paying a kind of an equivalent um, uh, stumpage fee, it's called, then there's no tariffs or very little tariffs on that timber. So for example, uh, timber coming from New Brunswick doesn't have any um, a charge on it. But, uh, and timber coming from Quebec, I believe, I'm not sure, but has a very small charge. But timber coming from uh, BC is the one which is the biggest volume and that has the biggest charge. So Canada has gone to the World Trade Organization to um, uh, settle this dispute. The World Trade Organization always, always finds in favor of Canada to say this is not a subsidy. Uh, the U.S. just uh, keeps appealing. Uh, and uh, what they, the U.S. would do is they say, okay, well, they'd be taking off the tariff to satisfy the judgment. And then a month later, they put it back on. And then it has to start all over from the beginning. So this is a, a dispute which is ongoing. Uh, not only that, by the way, it's not just the the um, it's not just the stumpage fee that the government gives, but if you may remember, for years and years and years, the Canadian National Railway, which is a government-owned railway, would not would charge very low rates for uh, shipping the lumber, um, and you know the U.S. of course objected to that also. So um, this is a, an ongoing dispute. Uh, perhaps Biden and Trudeau will be able to work this out. Uh, the United States home builders and the United States consumers are the ones who suffer from this tariff because it just makes Canadian lumber much more expensive than it normally would be. And therefore, the cost of building a house is more than it would be. So um, it's not something that benefits the average American. It's something that benefit only the powerful lumber uh lumber, we'll call them lumber barons, you know, for a good word, uh, in the United States, who needless to say are big contributors to, um, you know, they were big contributors to the Trump, uh, um, you know, team. Um, and uh, it remains to be seen in general, if I may put an aside, you, uh, consumers in general are never figured out to be an important um, um an important political uh, catchment group. No one ever considers the opinions of consumers because consumers are not organized. Consumers are too diffuse. Um, you know, it's much easier to consider the employees of a mine, of a timber company, of a railway, of an airline, than to say, oh, well, you know, if we allowed sort of more freedom in, in economics, every Canadian might benefit by one or 2%. But one or two percent doesn't matter when you're worrying about jobs of hundreds of people in you know a specific industry. So you know, as an aside, that's why consumers in the United States are never uh, considered; their interests are not considered when discussing these sort of disputes. So um, uh, uh, this dispute, by the way, has gone on for 25 years. Just to give you an idea. Um, the other thing is that the World Trade Organization. Uh, President Trump uh, felt that this organization is unfair to the U.S., naturally, because anything that, you know, goes against him is unfair to the U.S. And um, in order for the World Trade Organization to function, it needs judges on the court. 
it was the United States' turn to name the judges on one of the highest panels. And what Trump did was just not name anybody. Because there was no quorum of judges, there couldn't be any cases held. And because there wasn't any cases held, the, the United States couldn't lose in any of these trade disputes that they're in. Uh, now that Biden is elected, we'll see if he names any judges to the World Trade Organization, which the U.S. Uh, pulled out of uh, or, or wanted to pull out of. And, um, you know, we'll see where it goes from here. But, you know, this is more of a dispute to be negotiated in a certain sense than to be judged in the World Trade Organization. But because it's so hard to, to um, you know, come to a compromise on it, that's why it's lasted for 25 years. They will, so that's the end of that trade dispute. Just check my time. The last one I wanted to speak about was the dairy dispute. This is a new one, relatively new one. So um, we all know that Canada has a supply management system for eggs, uh, chicken, um, and dairy products. A supply management system means simply that um, the amount of production is limited, regulated, and limited so that the prices of these um, items will be high so that the um, farmers who produce them will have a stable and guaranteed income. Uh, and the consumers, again, as I mentioned before, were never considered, will end up paying some higher prices uh, in order to guarantee the supply of these products, in order to guarantee that there will be farmers producing these products. And this system has been around for uh, uh, a long time, 60, 70 years, I think. I think it started in the 1960s, but don't quote me on that one. Um, the, uh, the end result is that the prices of these particular items, uh, dairy, um, uh, which includes, of course, milk, cheese, uh, you know, cottage cheese and everything else made of milk, um, as well as industrial products, uh, industrial cheese, uh, is much higher in Canada than in the United States. The United States does not have this market supply system. Um, uh, it has a free market. The other aspect of a market supply system is that in order to keep the prices up, production is limited. In other words, each farmer is not allowed to produce as much as they want. They have to produce only the, their quota. And so in order to go into this business, you have to buy a quota from somebody else. There's no such thing as saying, oh, I want to be. Uh, I want to buy a dairy farm. I'll just buy some cows and start producing milk. The milk that, if you want to do that, you have to buy the right to produce that milk from a farmer who's retiring. In that way, the total amount of milk produced always stays the same. And what happens if you overproduce? You know, if you just you say, "Oh my God, my cows just gave so much milk. Uh, I have nowhere to store it." Um, you get fined for overproducing. And it's better for you to just spill out the milk than to deliver it uh, because that way you don't get fined. So that's the, called the supply management system. Now, um, it also is regulated in the sense that Canada regulates imports because obviously there's no point to pay farmers a high amount of money and limit their supply. If you could import whatever you wanted, that would just drive the prices down 
and you know the farmers would be out of business. So Canada has a rule that says that 5% of Canadian total dairy production is allowed to be imported. So that means that we don't import milk from anybody anywhere. Uh, we don't import uh, sort of uh, less expensive dairy items from anywhere. But we do import, you know, cheeses. Of course, you can buy Parmesan cheese and French cheese and Dutch cheese because the total volume being imported is a small amount compared to all the, uh, um, you know, cheese consumed in Canada. Now, the United States, of course, has always objected to this. They say this is not fair. And um, Canada did agree you know, when we signed the TPP, the Trans-Pacific uh, Agreement, uh, we did agree to open up our uh, supply markets a little bit. Now, this is not of any great concern to our partners in the Pacific because China and Japan and Korea, of course, uh, even Chile uh, and Peru, um, they're not big dairy producers. In fact, they're big dairy importers. Where, where it did concern was Australia and New Zealand because they are dairy exporters. And uh, as part of the TPP, uh, we had to open up our um, markets a little bit more to imported dairy products. What, when, when the um, uh, Canadian uh, Dairy Association uh, started raising hell, uh, Mr. Trudeau agreed to do something similar to what Trump did when he put tariffs on um, Chinese production, uh, Chinese imports, and the Chinese stopped buying American uh, exports. Uh, he subsidized the farmers who were losing money because they were losing a market. Similarly, uh, because of increased imports from say Australia and New Zealand, um, uh, Trudeau agreed to, to a basket of money that would be distributed to Canadian dairy producers. Now, luckily for Trudeau, uh, America did not join the TPP. This is one thing, of course, that Trump did right away. He said, I'm not joining any, any trade organization because we will lose the ability to 100% control what goes on in our country. Uh, you know, he, he, distrusts, he distrusts everything that has to do with uh, foreign um, involvement. And to be a party to a trade agreement means that you have to abide by the judgments in disputes. And these judgments are not made in the US, they'd be made um, you know, around the world. So he got out of that agreement, meaning that the US did not gain any extra, um, uh, any extra uh, access to the Canadian dairy market. However, when NAFTA was re negotiated, the so-called new uh, America-US-Mexico-Canadian agreement, there was a provision in there that Canada would, re would open its dairy um, business a little bit to more to American producers. That was what Trudeau had to agree to in order to, you know, renegotiate NAFTA. It's a sort of a small, we'll call it concession. And again, he said he would reimburse farmers for their losses. Now, how was this extra uh, quota, we'll call it, of imports allocated? Uh, instead of Canadians going to um, 
say, uh, okay, uh, you know, we're now, let's say, importing an, uh, an extra 100,000 tons of cheese a year, uh, you know, please check it at the border. Instead of doing that, um, the Canadian government gave out licenses to import the cheese or dairy products, and the licenses were given to Canadian companies in the main. So let's say, for example, Saputo, when, uh, the, uh, you know that Saputo controls one-sixth of all, all cheese production in North America, meaning they have plants all over the United States and even into Argentina. It's an enormous company. So these companies got sort of the right to import from the US the um, extra dairy quota. And in a certain sense, it left out American producers because um, uh, the Canadian companies kind of could, let's say, uh, make their own arrangements um, so that uh, they sort of make the money off of the trade in that product. Of course, Trump objected to this whole idea and he said, we're, we're suing you. You know, his favorite, his favorite line, we're suing you. So um, th that dispute is now up in the new courts that are there to uh, adjudicate uh, disputes in uh, the USMCA um, agreement, the, the new NAFTA, we'll call it. So this dairy dispute is ongoing. An interesting story related to that is that uh, I remember reading about this, um, that um, the uh, cops, and I'm not sure if this was in Milwaukee, but it could have been, uh, were watching trucks uh, being um, uh, sort of manipulated and loaded and moved to warehouses in the middle of the night. And then they would take off and um, they uh, were heading to Canada. And the cops had suspected this of being a cocaine smuggling operation. Um, and uh, when they were ready, they assembled one of these huge police operations and they stopped the truck or trucks. There, was, there wasn't a lot of trucks, but there was a couple of them. They stopped them on the road. They ordered everyone to get out of the trucks. They looked in the trucks and saw nothing. They took apart the trucks and in the floorboards, they said, aha, we found the packages. And when they opened up the packages, it was cheese. They were actually smuggling cheese instead of cocaine into Canada. So this is one of like the famous kind of, uh, uh, you know, we got it wrong stories. And if you look it up, you can get the details somewhere of cheese smuggling into Canada. Um, so that's the last dispute and, uh, let me just check my watch. Okay. So that, that's the story of three different Canadian, um, American, uh, trade disputes. And I think what I'll do is if you have any questions about this, I'll stop here before I go on to my next subject, which I realize I won't be able to cover all of, but, uh, we'll see what happens anyway. So any questions about what I've spoken about, either oil, lumber, or, or dairy products. All of you people know, all of you inveterate cross-border shoppers, that when you go to, uh, you know, uh, uh, Costco in the States, or you go to, uh, you know, any of the grocery stores, you'll see eggs for 99 cents a dozen, 
you'll see milk for uh, $2.50 American a gallon, which is like four liters. Um, and cheese, uh, you could still get for under $3 a pound US, you know, retail. So you can imagine the difference in prices uh, there, even converting into the Canadian dollar. So I'll stop for a second, see if you have any questions. If not, I will change subjects. Hi, Mr. Dwaskin, I don't see any more questions. I don't see any questions, but if you want, I'll wait a, a minute or two to see if we get anything. Uh, yeah, I feel a little bit. I'll take a drink of water in the meantime. Uh, okay, so my uh, second subject, actually, and I, and I see I'm going to have a problem here. Uh, my second subject is to talk about Russia. And the reason for that, of course, is the arrest of Mr. Navalny, uh, who is a leading liberal uh, politician in Russia, who was poisoned by uh, the Putin government. His life, you know, hung by a thread, and he was lucky to survive this poisoning. Um, because the pilot on the plane that he was traveling on decided to land it instead of flying all the way to Moscow. Uh, he was taken to Germany where he was, uh, it was proved that the uh, poison that he was administered was uh, called Novichok, which only the Soviet, only the sorry, Russian government has access to. And he even tricked a, um, uh, one of the people who did the poisoning by calling him on the phone and pretending he was someone else, uh, where the um, man admitted uh, that the poison was put in his underwear uh, and, um, you know, admitted that this was a sort of a government operation. So Mr. Navalny took a few months to recuperate in Berlin and he flew back to Russia uh, this week and he was arrested at the airport. Uh, uh, his arrest uh, has resulted in the um, demonstrations in, 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 to free him in, in hundreds of cities in, in Russia, which is really an amazing thing because uh, the Russian government controls all the official uh, media um, outlets, meaning radio, television, uh, etc. And it's only social media which allowed, um, um, you know, his supporters to come out and uh, the fact that Russia is really sort of a police state and definitely not a democracy means that these people took a risk in coming out. And indeed, they arrested 3,000 something people out of the hundreds of thousands who have, um, who have demonstrated. In addition, Mr. Navalny was given charges and convicted of, uh, you know, uh, we'll call it uh, trumped up charges, meaning he has a criminal record, meaning that according to the government, he's not allowed to run for office. Uh, and he was interested in challenging Putin in an election. But, you know, Mr. Putin would never let him get away with this. So uh, this, so we'll call it a peaceful insurrection in a sense, echoes the ones that were held in the Ukraine called the, the Red, the Rose, uh, the Rose uh, Uprising and the one in Georgia, same thing. And of course, Putin is very afraid that, uh, you know, if the street goes against him, his whole regime could tumble because everybody knows that he was not freely and democratically elected. 
uh, especially this last time. And, uh, you know, in a certain sense, um, it's a tough decision to make, you know, in in next door in Belarus, um, there was a fake election. The people came out after the results were announced and um, the people are still coming out. So, uh, you know, this 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 kind of um, uh, uh, these demonstrations could die down. This uprising could die down or it could grow and lead to the overthrow of the government. It, um, it's kind of uh, I won't call it 50 50. I think Mr. Putin, of course, has the tremendous advantage of being in power and being able to control police and soldiers and the military. But there's always a possibility that this could uh, end um, badly for Mr. Putin. So it's a really, it's the first large challenge he's had to his rule in quite a long time. But this is the kind of um, the introduction. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted to go through Russian history and it's, uh, I have seven minutes to cover um, a thousand years, so it's not going to happen that easily. But just to give you an idea of what Russia is, we all know it's the largest country in the world, physically. Uh, it has 145 million people. It's so huge that it, it by itself covers 11% of the total land area in the world. Um, it straddles two continents, of course, Europe in the West and Asia in the East. It has 11 time zones. That's how long it is. Uh, and 16 countries border it. Uh, metropolitan Moscow, which is the capital, actually has a population of 20 million people. So uh, close to 15% of the whole country uh, live in greater Moscow. Um, the size of the economy is uh, 11th in the world, if you measure it by um, actual dollars, or sixth in the world if you measure it by purchasing power. Um, uh, purchasing power. So the average Russian in, in actual dollars is is making about ten thousand dollars a year, and that buys the equivalent of about twenty-seven thousand dollars a year. So it's a sort of a middle-income country, not super wealthy and certainly not very poor. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, of course, because it's such a huge area, it's hard to sort of put your finger on uh, the history of it because it depends on where you're talking about. But the uh, sort of kernel of the state of Russia started around the 800s and 900s in what we would call today the Ukraine area started by Swedish immigrants who came uh, from there into that area. And their state uh, that was called Rus, R-U-S, Rus. And that's where the word Russia came from. Uh, in 988, the most important year, they, they adopted the Orthodox uh, Christian faith, which was brought by Greek um, Byzantine uh, priests, who uh, also uh, invented the alphabet for writing the Russian language, which is a sort of an adaptation of the Greek alphabet. Um, there, were, there was an enormous invasion of Mongols in the 1200s, and their rule lasted over 100 years. So the Mongols had an enormous effect on Russia, and I mean, they went even into Eastern Europe and all over the Middle East, but their, um, their taking over Russia uh, led to a 
settlement of people called the Tatars, who are the uh, sort of uh, inheritors of the Mongol tradition, who still live in Russia today and who are the second largest um, minority in uh, Russia today. Um, the Black Death then came along in the 1300s, but because people lived so far apart and also because of the tradition, interestingly enough, of these hot uh, baths, uh, Russia was not nearly as affected as much as Western Europe was. Um, when uh, Constantinople fell to the Ottomans in 1453, uh, it was Russia who picked up the leadership of the Orthodox faith and who declared itself to be the second, the second uh, Byzantium. And that's why the Russian symbol is two eagles, uh, meaning one eagle for Byzantium and one eagle for uh, Moscow, uh, meaning that they are the true uh, inheritors of the Orthodox uh, center of gravity. Um, the Russian state, of course, expanded in the 1500s and the Turks were fought uh, constantly. Uh, the Turks actually burnt Moscow in 1571, so you know how bitter this battle was with them. Uh, the Romanov dynasty was founded in the 1600s. They reached the Pacific. They fought wars with Poland. Um, Peter the Great in 1700 brought westernization to Russia. Uh, he uh, won in military battles against Sweden the Baltic coast, what is today Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and he founded St. Petersburg uh, as a port a warm uh, a, a port on the Baltic, which was kind of an outlet to the sea that Russia did not have before. Um, in the 1790s, uh, under Catherine the Great, uh, there was a partition of Poland uh, where Russia received uh, uh, not only Poland, but what we would call today Belarus. And in the process inherited millions of Jews who beforehand were not really allowed to live in Russia. But when they took over most of Poland and Belarus and the Ukraine, uh, they inherited all these millions of Jews who uh, in you know, many cases were the forefathers of, uh, you know, certainly of my family and uh, others who uh, were able to leave Europe uh, either before or after the war. Uh, they also took over the Crimean Peninsula from the, uh, from the uh, Turks uh, and the Caucasus from Persia, uh, Finland from Sweden, and they even colonized Alaska. Uh, as you may know, they sold Alaska for $7 million to the United States in 1867. In 1820, is a fact I did not know, um, it was Russians who discovered Antarctica, uh, the first ones to actually travel there. Um, uh, Napoleon was defeated by the Russians or by the Russian winter. Uh, liberal ideas started coming in during the 1800s, partly from Napoleon, uh, partly from other places. Um, and um, uh, uh, you know, liberal and socialist ideas sort of grew up at the end of the 1800s. The sort of Russian Tsarist uh, regime did not adapt, it was not able to adapt to these changes to turn itself into a constitutional monarchy like in uh, Great Britain or like in uh, Holland and Sweden, other places. 
there was a there was a war which uh, was lost with Japan in 1905, the Russo Russo Japanese War. The first time, by the way, a non-European power defeated a European power in war. And a new constitution was put in in 1906, which allowed for some freedom of speech and assembly, political parties, a Duma, an, uh, an assembly. Uh, and they gave out free land in Siberia, which you know led to millions of people moving out to populate these empty territories. Uh, in the First World War, Russia joined uh, with uh, Serbia, a fellow Orthodox country against Austria. They got bogged down in that war against Prussia and uh, lost millions of people in the fighting. And in the middle of that war, uh, two revolutions happened, as we all know. There was a spring revolution where the uh, Tsar was deposed and a fall revolution where the communists took over in 1917, led by Lenin. Um, and uh, this revolution led to a three-year civil war, which lasted from the uh, 1918 to 21. And at the end of this war, the communists prevailed. Uh, they created a sort of a federation of these different republics. They're called republics, but they were actually sort of provinces run by the communists from Moscow. And uh, they signed a peace agreement uh, in the middle, of, uh, at the end of the war, giving up uh, the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, giving up Finland, giving up uh, sort of the uh, parts of the Ukraine to Poland in exchange for peace and recognition. There were 10 million people in the, killed in the civil war and in the famine afterward, uh, there were many more who died. Um, just checking the time here. Oh, we're already at 302. Well, um, you know, uh, Stalin, uh, took over after Lenin died in 24, uh, purges, forced collectivization of famine in the Ukraine, uh, state ownership of the economy, took over all the farms, etc., etc., etc. In 1939, they, they agreed with the Germans and the Nazis to partition Poland. The Nazis then invaded in 1941, leading to a huge amount of losses, the murders of millions of Jews who were living in the western part of the Soviet Union. Uh, eventually, uh, the, uh, the Soviets prevailed in the war. They ended up marching into Eastern Europe, taking over uh, Berlin and dividing Europe in, and, you know, into the Soviet bloc, um, which they controlled until the end of their time in the 1990, 1991. So, um, uh, you know, in the meantime, they were exceeded in, in, you know, succeeded in sports, launched the first uh, satellite, the Sputnik in 57. They got bogged down into a war in Afghanistan from 79 to 89. And that's kind of what led to the end of the Soviet Union, the failure in that war that people were complaining about all the losses. There was a brief uh, attempt at liberalization by, by um, uh, by Gorbachev, which sort of failed. And, uh, you know, the regime was thrown uh, over in 91 and all the different Soviet republics became countries. And um, after a terrible decline in the economy for adjusting, things picked up uh, in the end of the 90s up uh, because of the oil prices. And uh, uh, Putin took over 
um, in uh, 2000, I think it was. And he, yeah, 1999. And he, you know, he's leader up until today. Uh, 80% of their money comes from exports of uh, minerals, uh, oil, gas, uh, wheat, uh, and timber. Uh, they have a lot of money, a lot of reserves that they built up, $438 billion from the oil and gas business. So they are not going bankrupt very quickly. Um, all the corruption that was there has led to you know, discontent. Uh, but a large middle class was created, and it's this middle class with Navalny's supporters. Um, and uh, basically, that's it. Uh, you know, just a thumbnail sketch quickly about the country. Um, uh, you know, just about everybody speaks Russian in that country as a first or second language. Uh, and um, interestingly enough, 10% of the population today are Muslims, and that population is growing. So there had been a few uprising by the Muslims, especially the Chechens, which were put down. But this is something, you know, an additional problem that Russia has to look forward to. They got involved in wars in Syria and, um, you know, successfully took over Crimea from the uh, Ukrainians and invaded part of the Ukraine as well. So um, while Putin was giving out these kind of military victories, and while the economy was going good, uh, pe people approved him and they're used to his sort of hard line because they were used to the czarist way of running things. They never had a liberal democracy. But because of the internet and because of European influence and because of travel abroad uh, by millions of Soviet, millions of Russians, uh, they got a taste and they know what Western life is like and uh, they want more of it in uh, Russia. And so that's what's led to today's, um, today's crisis, we'll call it. So I know it's three o'clock, so I'll stop here and uh, see if you have any uh, you know, questions, comments. And um, thanks very much for listening. So we have a question, Mr. Dwaskin. It's by an anonymous attendee. Yeah. The question is, the pipeline going eastward, not south, where does it go? And what about Quebec not wanting oil shipped this way? Okay, good question. Um, there is a very good question. Um, we do have pipeline, oil pipelines, which go across the country in Canada. Um, the main one goes to Sarnia, Ontario, which is a big uh, oil refinery. Um, and we have oil pipelines which go from Maine to through Maine into Quebec City and down to Montreal. And then from there, they go into Ontario. So there is oil pipelines going all the way across Canada. What the Canadian government had suggested was, instead of importing oil from the, the, the Middle East, shipping it to Maine and shipping it into Quebec City refinery and into St. John, New Brunswick refinery, how about reversing the direction of the oil, taking the oil past Sarnia into the refineries in Montreal, you know, we have one in the East End there, we used to have more, uh, and to Quebec City, where is another big refinery, the Ultramar refinery, and into St. John's, New Brunswick, where Irving has a big refinery. Why not make the oil go the other direction uh, from west to east instead of east to west? Uh, 
Of course, the environmentalists started again beating the drum and saying, no, 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 this is dangerous and we don't want it and we don't want any oil altogether. Uh, and uh, they forced the Ontario and Quebec governments to come up with the following formula. If you, if you can guarantee 100% that there will never, ever, ever be a leak of oil, and if you post billions of dollars uh, in escrow to guarantee that you'll clean it up, then maybe we'll agree to the extension of the pipeline. It's needless to say, these, these are unrealistic demands. And so it wasn't an extension of a pipeline. It was just a reversal of direction of oil. And so that hasn't been approved. And so we're still back to importing oil uh, to the uh, refinery in St. John, uh, Newfoundland and to Quebec City and to Montreal. That oil that we're getting actually is foreign oil coming from uh, the Middle East and also from the Caribbean, from uh, like I was saying before, from Mexico and uh, from uh, Colombia and maybe even from Venezuela. It's, they can't get their act together to put oil on a ship, but we used to get it from there. So that's, that's the answer to that question. Okay, I see that uh, somebody raised their, uh, their hand. Uh, the number 88471, please unmute yourself and ask your question to Mr. Dwoskin. Uh, is, is it me? Am I allowed to speak? Yeah. Yes, okay. I hear you. So, okay, I started typing, but it's easier for me to uh, ask you. Um, a few things bother me. Is it all right if I don't uh, dwell on the topics of today? Whatever you like. Okay. So number one, why why did the Canadian government uh, give UNRWA $90 million when their mission is to hate Israel, disseminate uh, terrible vilified information through school children in textbooks? That, that's number one. Number two, is um, the press is so against Israel in terms of the vaccine, in terms of providing the vaccine to the Palestinians, when the Palestinians actually won't take anything from Israel. In fact, I just read this morning that the Emirates offered the vaccine to the Palestinians and they refused it because it had to travel through Israel to reach them. Number three is what is your comment on Biden appointing these anti-Israel people, two of them, one is a Muslim anti-Israel and the other is a Jewish anti-Israel, and they were appointed to top U.S. intelligence positions. So those are my three points. Okay, yes? I'm, just I'm just writing it down. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so I can see, um, uh, you know, uh, where you are coming from. Yeah. Um, Let's both take them each one, but I think I do have a time limit. And okay. I think Angela, you're supposed to let me know because I, you know, you sent a memo to stop by 3.15. So um, first of all, the UNRWA is the United Nations Refugee, yeah. uh, uh, Refugee Relief Association. I think that's what it's called. Um, uh, their, their mandate is to help refugees all over the world. Um, and part of the refugees that they help are Palestinian refugees. Uh, what's unique about this particular group of refugees is that for political reasons, um, it was recognized that uh, 
refugees who are Palestinians have the right to receive aid from the United Nations, not only to refugees themselves, but to descendants of refugees. So obviously the refugees were created in 1948 when Israel was created as a country and Palestinians were either forced to leave or left on their own from the territory that, which became Israel. And these people settled in Jordan, they settled in Lebanon, they settled in Syria, right. they settled in Egypt, they settled in many places and the United Nations took the responsibility to help them out. Obviously never expecting that this, would last, this help would last for 73 years. Um, but it, it is what it is, we'll call it like that. And since the Arab world had 22 mem 